David, after criticizing ESPN's no politics policy, Dan Lebetard said he was not in the right frame of mind to be on his radio show Monday, according to Sports Business Journal. What I want to know is, if you didn't want to do this podcast today, how would you have described your mental state? <laughs> What's the old Southern phrase that was like, sent for and wouldn't co- and couldn't come? You know that one? Mm, no, I don't. Yeah, that's just sort of just like, I, I didn't want to show, or I it wasn't in the mood for showing up. Yeah, they, the Brian was sent for and couldn't come today. I've, I feel like we've seen a lot of celebrities who, or maybe politicians who quit their job, cite exhaustion, right? Mental exhaustion. That's kind yes. of a nice, kind of, a, I'm just simply exhausted. I think if it were you or I, or even somebody who produces a show, the correct answer that you couldn't give would be, I'm currently asleep. <laughs> yeah, just earlier today, Brian Stelter tweeted uh, a quote from Lebetard today saying that he was, uh, upon his return, saying, quote, I'm a little scared, a little nervous. I'm walking a bit of a tightrope. So, you know, the metaphors didn't end on day one. They're still going. I think that I would have been a little bit more sympathetic if he said he was, you know, as nervous as a cat in a room full of rocking chairs to go on the air today. (laughs) We are the brain rot of media podcasts. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. media consumers brian curtis and david shoemaker here a bunch of great stuff to get to on today's show we're going to talk about that big al franken story in the new yorker we've got a report from america's content farms on the subject of jeffrey epstein we've got the dateline of the week and the overworked twitter joke of the week as always but david back to the dan lebitard affair last thursday lebitard went off on Donald Trump's racist comments about the Congress members known as the squad uh, and the send her back bit in particular. He also went after ESPN. Let's listen to a little bit of it. There's a racial division in this country that's being instigated uh, by the president. And we here at ESPN haven't had the stomach for that fight because Jamel did some things on Twitter and you saw what happened after that. And then here, all of a sudden, nobody talks politics on anything unless we can use one of these sports figures as a meat shield in the most cowardly possible way to discuss these subjects. But what happened last night at this rally is deeply offensive, um, done by the president of our country. Lebitard then read a tweet from Nick Wright, who was apparently allowed to go in on this stuff. And then he continued, let's let this tape roll a little bit longer. It is so wrong what the president of our country is doing, trying to go down, getting reelected, by dividing the masses at a time when the old white man, the old rich white man feels oppressed, being attacked by minorities, black people, brown people, women. That's who we're going after now. Black people, brown people, women. And that's the, like, let's do it as the platform. That's what you're seeing. And the only way we can discuss it around here, because this isn't about politics, it's about race. What you're seeing happening around here is about race. And it's been turned into politics. And we only talk about it around here when Steve Kerr Popovich says something. We don't talk about what is happening unless there's some sort of weak, cowardly sports angle that we can run it through when sports has always been a place where this stuff changes. Five seconds after something like that happens, David, everybody's mind goes to ESPN and politics, ESPN Mm -hmm. and liberalism. What is the policy? Here's where my mind goes to the anguish in Dan Lebitard's voice because what he is explaining there is the eternal conundrum of being a sports writer. That yeah. 
what you do on a daily basis is about these games and what you're not talking about on a daily basis is about that shit that's going on over there in the white house and seems like a much bigger story. That's Mm -hmm. what he's talking about. And we're looking at it now through this ESPN lens and the rules and Jimmy Paterno and all this stuff. We'll get to that in a second. This is, this is what being a sports writer is all about. And it's saying that I have this giant platform and somehow either I'm not, or I can't talk about the thing that it seems much more important. That seems like a much bigger story. And sometimes that plays out as policy between the writer, the media member and their employer. But I think most of the time it just plays out in somebody's heart and in their mind. And, you know, to me, if I ever meet a sports writer, sports media person who isn't feeling this, especially right now, I kind of wonder what's wrong with them. And I kind of wonder, you know, if you, if, if you just think that this little thing we do over here most of the time is just fine. And, you know, there's not a little part of you that wonders if you shouldn't be doing something else with your life. Then I just, you know, so to me, it was, to me, it was Levitard articulately articulating something that has been around forever. what do you think? I think that's right. I think, I, I think that you, you put it perfectly. Um, you know, we're not in the finger pointing part segment of the, of the discussion yet, but, but I do think that there's something to be said for, you know, when you, when your business model is creating this kind of wall to wall entertainment world, right. Mm-hmm. Um, then there has to be room for discussion of other things. I mean, if you're if your intention is to get pe- is to get people to turn on the channel in the morning or turn on the radio in the morning and never flip the dial, I mean, that's got to be the the you know the goal at the end of the day. And then then in in some in some ways you've got to you've got to figure out you've got to figure out a way to be all encompassing or at least somewhat more encompassing in your subject matter. And then separate from that, or maybe it's a, it's a corollary to that. When your business model is based on personalities, right? Mm-hmm. ESPN Radio is not just reading sp- sports scores uh, and like injury reports. Is th- this is Dan Lebatard, the human being, is the reason? I mean, is 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 getting paid lots of money by ESPN because of who he is as a person. He has a TV show. He has a radio show that's broadcast as a TV show. Um, this is, I mean, it, it's, 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 it's him as a, it's him as a personality. And part of that personality is, is interested in talking about this. Well, it shouldn't be, it, I mean, on the one hand, I get, I get the, the corporate stance of like only when it relates to sports, only when whatever, but it does seem sort of ridiculous on its face when the hook is that someone with a similar job description at another company tweeted about it. And now we can talk about it. Now, maybe that doesn't count for, you know, (laughs) maybe that maybe, maybe it doesn't count when Nick Wright tweets about it, but is really all we need just to have like, I mean, I mean, couldn't we just have one low level NFL player or one medium tier NFL or NBA player who just took it upon himself to tweet a liberal, the liberal perspective on every political thing so that they would have a hook to talk about it on the radio. I mean, would that really be a solution? Because that seems to be what they're asking for. And that's what he's Um, calling out. That's what he's calling out is so silly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and, and to think that, I mean, I guess that like, you know, we discussed this, we discussed this, you know, when Trump first made the, I mean, first, first tweeted these things, um, you know, but that, 
I feel like at some point you have to just acknowledge that something's beyond the pale, right? And 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 I think that's what Levitard was doing here. And I think that it's a direct challenge to his superiors to say, you know, I'm sure that along with all of these bylaws or whatever about, you know, sticking to sports, they, they probably said, you know, at some point it'll be to the point that we have to, we, you know, that you'd have to touch on it. And I think this is Levitard saying we're at that point. And uh, if you don't agree with me, then like, Sure, then I'm, you're you're welcome to come down on the side of the racist. This is well, I think I think John Skipper had a policy who was a previous president of ESPN that was like that, which is there's all these things we have to do because we're ESPN and the data shows us we should do this. And this is where the audience is and this is what the audience wants. But there is a subset of things we should do because they're the right thing to do, because mm-hmm. the time the country, whatever it is, demands that we should do this. This is the right thing to do. People may not want this as much as they want something else, but this is the right thing to do. In every public statement Jimmy Pataro has made, he has not talked in those terms. He has said very clearly, the data tells us to do this. The data says ESPN viewers, consumers do not want politics. Politics with big, big air quotes. So therefore... Even if you, Dan Lebitard, were hired, as you just said, because you're a really interesting person, because you're a polymath, and when you sit down at dinner at night, 60% of your conversation is about this thing Trump said today, and you have a great, interesting perspective on it, you, you, you're not allowed to talk about that. That's it. We don't want mm-hmm. that. We want you talking about NBA free agency, NFL training camp, that kind of stuff. And, you know, listen, Lebitard has snuck more non-sports into a sports show than basically anybody in human history, especially Mm -hmm. on that big a platform. But, you know, I don't know. It's funny because to me, Pataro's whole thing was you can't talk about this. And by the way, that forced everybody at ESPN whose politics are similar to Lebitard's to make a choice. And you, we know who these people are. This isn't a secret. But those yeah. people have made a choice to say, look, you get the ESPN exposure, you get the nice contract, you get a perch at the top of the sports media world, but guess what? You have to play by the rules. You can't mm-hmm. talk about it. And, you know, Pataro, since he came in, did that. And think of how many people have made that choice. Think of how many people 99% of the time on a daily basis have been like, okay, okay. Well, 99% of the time it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think a lot of people would make that choice. I don't, I think that there's a, you know, I don't think we need to wade too deeply into the moral imperative argument. I think that for a lot of people, a lot of people's calculus is, or people are in a lot different position than Dan Lebitard. Maybe Dan Lebitard would have done the same thing if he was broadcasting on a pirate radio to an audience of a hundred <laughs> people, you know? I kind of actually do want to wade into the moral imperative. I just mean that a lot of people's calculus for saying yes is that they decide is that, you know, they have other their priorities are providing for their family or doing whatever, you know, there, there's I don't even want to cast dispersions at anybody else at ESPN. Let's let's roll this back and imagine that Grantland had continued past 2015. Simmons resigns. You and we're all a sort of happy Grantland family and mm-hmm. Donald Trump gets elected and Jimmy Pataro becomes president of ESPN. Mm-hmm. And you and I look at each other and go, wait, we can't say anything about Donald Trump ever, yeah. either in our ESPN product or basically on our Twitter feeds or just we can't use any part of whatever microphone we have. 
would we have quit the next day? You know, in my uh, Walter Mitty fantasy, I'd love to think so, but I probably not. Yeah, probably not. But I would like to think that you and I would have at least been pushed mentally inside ourselves to worry about it and to wonder if yeah, we okay. made the right decision. Yes. But I think that I think that I'm not sure if this I'm not sure what side this really comes down on, but I think it's worth it's worth pointing out that part of that there is a moral aspect to that, which is that like the things that our president said and tweeted, um, you know, everyone should be shouting from the rooftops about how offensive and inappropriate and problematic they are. But there's also the I mean, and this maybe this gets back to what we, you know, the kind of core of the the the, the media side of the conversations, like the idea that a site like Grantland would exist and not be touching on these issues is just might would be mm-hmm. impossible to 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 consider in in 2019. Right. I mean, that would be like, I mean, could you imagine the what what the third rail would have to be for Simmons or Sean Fennessy to tell us, no, we're not going to touch on that for fear of offending readers? You know, I mean, it would just like the idea that you can be a voice driven, a writing driven, even just a, an idea driven media outlet in 2019 and have that and have anything, have something that significant be off limits is just would be mind boggling. Right. So like that. So to say if he I mean, if if, the, if that was the rule at Grantland, yeah, it would be like I would I would think about quitting, but I would think about quitting almost less so because of the moral aspect and more because of the like, I don't this what have we gotten ourselves into just from a purely functional standpoint aspect? Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and when moral, you know, again, it's, you're right. It's biting off a lot to say, I expect everyone to be up in arms about this and, and, you know, and, and, and calling out Trump for racism and stuff like that. I guess I more mean like just living with yourself and being okay with what you did, you know, look, we, we, we're lucky to work in a place in a great place right now where we don't have those kind of handcuffs on us. But still, mm-hmm. you know, you and I spend a lot of our time doing other stuff too. I love, yeah. I love writing about Kendrick Perkins. I do. That's, that's fun. But when I look back and say, you know, Brian, what'd you do during the Trump years? You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, that, that stuff plays into it. Not because there's anything wrong with writing a piece like that, but because just what I talked about with the conundrum of being a sports writer to your point about voice. I think that's so important because the kind of people we're talking about here were either hired or promoted by John Skipper and they were hired or promoted because they had a voice and because they were interesting people beyond the world of sports. Mm -hmm. Those are the people who are now being are subject to a policy that is really enforceable only to people who are all I want to do is break NFL trades. All I want to do is break NBA trades. I just, Maybe I care about politics, but it's not, you know, my day job is this, and this is what I want my work product to be. And it, to me, it's like you have a rule that was designed for a totally different workforce than the workforce that you actually have. And when, you know, Simmons, by the way, and I recommend Simmons did a whole prelude to this on his uh, Monday podcast, which everybody should listen to uh, because he's been in the eye of that storm in Bristol you know, at a level that you and I can't even imagine. But mm-hmm. one thing he talks about is what's going to happen with Levitard. And I wonder the same thing because, dude, this is July 2019. <laughs> we got 16 months 
before this <laughs> we election. Way to go. Is Trump going to campaign? Yeah. Is Trump going to talk about taxes and tax rates for the next 16 no. months? And if you if you let loose on this one and said, how can we not be talking about this? What happens when the next one happens? You know, and one thing we, we read in all the reports is that, you know, Pataro and Lebitard talked this last weekend and Pataro said he over and over that he's not going to change the policy, that he believes yeah. this is the only clean way to have a policy is saying you can't talk about this stuff. Well, listen, I mean, maybe that's I mean, maybe that's a functional path through it. Right. I mean, it's the sort of like. I mean, I forgot what they called it, but just sort of like the 24 rule when when we had the national debate about torture, there were, it's just like, no, I mean, the, you know, I think it, most level-headed people could agree that the appropriate thing to do was to make, was to was for torture in all instances to be illegal. And if there was ever an instance where torturing someone was the only way to stop a terrorist attack, well, then presumably you would be, uh, you, you would, you know, the, you, you would you would not be convicted of a of a major crime that you would be released because of mitigating circumstances and this and this uh, that's wildly overblowing it maybe but this feels like that right that like there's a there's an exception to every rule and maybe the most powerful thing that that Dan Levitard can do is to not be overtly political every episode for the next 6 months and to let and to to only uh you know and to choose to and to to choose to make his stands based on the things that he's he determines to be beyond the pale. Now maybe we'll be in a situation where there's many many instances of being beyond the pale. <laughs> we could be, beyond but I think the pale that there's twice a week. But I think Not yeah, nuts. I mean, with, listen, no, I mean this we, our podcast keeps on going along, I guess. But the but the but I do think that there's a I do think that there's a power to him. There's a power. I mean, it's not like Dan Levitard is an apolitical person. No one was particularly shocked by this, but when it happened, I think that a lot of people were caught off guard. And I think that that is where a lot of the power of what he, of his statement came from, right? Absolutely, um, absolutely, one hundred percent can confirm. And so, and so <laughs> after talking so to people maybe, at ESPN, they were absolutely taken aback and blindsided. And so maybe that's the. I mean, so maybe the the answer is Pataro's rule. I mean, I think that there's some legitimacy to if if to the to the idea if you're going to take it that that this is that this is a this is what ESPN is going to pursue in the abstract, that there's legitimacy to the idea that you have to have a hard and fast rule or else policing it would be impossible. Um, and then, may, and so maybe the, 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 own, the functional way forward is to have that be the rule and to punish the Dan Lebitards of the world when they feel it's necessary to speak out, but to punish them in consideration that they're, I mean, you know, consider when doling out the punishment that they're doing a supremely important thing that they believe very strongly in, you know? What is it like? It's like the equivalent of finding an NFL player like twenty five thousand dollars for missing a meeting or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I exactly. guess at, I guess at the end of the day, I just the the part the ESPN is ESPN enforcing its discipline policy part is the part I just don't give a shit about at all. It just seems so small in all this. But that's why. But that's why we're talking about it, though, right? I mean, that, I mean, that's not I'm, why we're not, talking about it. It's not actually not. It's actually not why I'm talking about it. But you know, I just I just yeah. think I think that is yes, you're right. That is. That is the cheese in the mousetrap that everybody runs to because it's ESPN and politics. It's media reporters. It's Clay Travis and all that stuff. To me, I just think, I just think there's something. I think there's just a much bigger idea here about the profession that we work in. I remember talking to Bob Lipsight many years ago about this. Bob Lipsight, who snuck more politics into a sports column than any human being has ever done. And, and, and wrote it better than any human being has ever done, probably. Yeah. 
he said to me, he said, you know what? I covered sports through the lens of race and gender and class. I did. But you know what I else I could have done? I could have gone out and written about race and gender and class. Mm-hmm. I, I could have just done that. And like I said, that to me is the idea in the back of everybody's mind here. And that's the uh, certainly the idea in the back of Dan Lebetard's mind, or not the the front of Dan Lebetard's mind. But that that's the big that's the big thing. Here. It's it's the it's the whole enterprise. It's not about ESPN and making rules and all that stuff. They they're going to go on just fine. Whatever happens, to Dan Lebetard, they're going to be just fine. Yeah, it, it's gone. It is. It's the business we work in, and it's a lot of us, not all of us, a lot of us, kind of coming to grips with that on a daily basis, especially in times like these. Mm-hmm. Well, one one quick thing on the lips and the lips uh, quote that you just referenced, a, you know, half remember quote have, by the way, right? No, 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 but that's but but it's an important idea regardless because you, I mean, just I'll just put you a little bit on the spot, but you have a lot of runway at the ringer. You could write more or less what you want to write as long as I mean, subject matter wise, there, there's there's very few things that are just getting shot down, you know, on, at, at at first pitch. Um, if you were determined to write a, I mean, a, a story about, uh, about race or racism, about class, uh, there's a good chance you would do it through the through the guise of of sports, right? You would find you you would find a sports story to tell that would make the a broader point that you want to sure. make because because that's that's what people are going to read, right? I mean, that's what or that's that's a there there there's a you as a writer might find some comfort there, but also it's a it's a you know the best way to illustrate a, a, a story sometimes is by writing through the lens of something else, by writing under the the banner of sports or any, or some other broad topic that, that people are accustomed to reading about. The whole point I'm trying to say is one of the, one of the scary things about this instance and about where ESPN is in general is that it risks shutting down, not just the, a voice that we like on the radio, but an entire important wing of journalism and literature. Um, for fear that someone might be offended, we're not going to we're we're going to just say a, an upfront no on all of those things that Bob Lipsight wrote. You know that none of those things would have gotten through would get through today. The thought of that, I mean, that's that's frightening. You're saying essentially that sports writers who had this part of their brain would see how high the gates were to getting that stuff into print or onto the mm-hmm. air, so they would just go elsewhere. They just say, "Ask for it." Yeah, I, I, it's certainly a fear. I mean, I certainly at big places, I guess what I would say is that nowadays at here we are at the end of the newspaper era, the wall is shorter than it's ever been at other places. So there's a ringer, there's dead spin. We could name a hundred sure. places that just really don't care. And it just doesn't matter. And they're not too worried about it. Yeah. But if you're already working there, if you're an employee at ESPN, if you're an mm-hmm. employee in one of these big places, the the idea of like, will I risk my job to tell this story when I could just as easily tell another story? I mean, that's that I think that that's the that that's the fear that I'm talking about. Absolutely. And that and I think and I, and again, I think that's the daily choice. And 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 sports writing and talking about sports is fun. <laughs> people people mm-hmm. people do it because it's fun. And choosing to write stories and that is is not, you know is not just pure toy department. People do it because it's, 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 it's really enjoyable, but yep. you're right. There is that sense that like, yeah, oh, you know, maybe that I have this great idea, but maybe I'll do this other idea because it works better, uh, for my, uh, for my employer. 
Mm-hmm. And I, and again, I, I just think there's a hundred percent chance that that's happening every day. Yep. A hundred percent chance that's happening every day at ESPN and elsewhere, by the way. All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send nominees to at the press box pod where they will be gratefully received. Uh, David, the most horrifying thing this summer that did not happen on Capitol Hill was the trailer for the movie adaptation of cats. <laughs> I'm really not kidding. Speaking of moral imperatives. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I, I'm kidding, I think. Uh, anyway, take it away, Dancing Cats. My very first trip to New York. When I was in like seventh or eighth grade, my mom and I went to the Winter Garden to see cats. And it was one of the most magical nights of my life. <laughs> it, it almost it almost made me want to be a theater critic. I didn't even I didn't even understand what that job was. And I, I just thought like whatever whatever life is, I want it to be here in the balcony of the Winter Garden watching cats climb up and down the walls and sing memory at the end of the show. Then I watched that trailer and I'm like, what the fuck was that whole thing about? I don't, yeah, I have no memory of the plot of this at all, and I can't no. imagine what it is. That was so weird. I I know what the I know what the plot is. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't get me any closer to understanding what the point of it is. Uh, there there I think that the overwhelming this is going to be one week where I think the overworked Twitter jokes are sort of all justified. The overwhelming <laughs> feeling uh, that I got in this office I mean, around the ringer was that uh, especially for like the under thirty set. Um, who were aware of this movie the whole way along, I mean, the, through production, were just sort of like, wait, this movie's actually about cats? You know, <laughs> I think that... Like, you can hear about the movie a million times, other sets are different sizes, whatever, and then it's just like, no, that's Taylor Swift in a in a cat costume. That's just sort of unbelievable. Yeah, I had, I had no idea that that's what was coming. I, I didn't know <laughs> what you, Cats Chris. was, what the plot of it was, and it was very... I think we should just have a sidebar of just explaining the plots of Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals just oh my directly. Because I think they would mm-hmm. all, this, this may be number one in just batshit crazy, but number two would be a close number two. I just, I just <laughs> think we could, we could make some hay here. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll start that on the ringer uh, on the press box next week. All right, David, speaking of cats, it was an overworked Twitter joke just to write, I'm allergic to cats. You sent me that. Yes. <laughs> I'm allergic to cats. I did see a couple people do the side by sides of uh, Rebel Wilson's cat uh, laying down with her arm behind her head and Garfield with the same pose. Yes. That was like a big, <laughs> big Jim Davis moment. Also, Iolanthe uh, Rosa asked us to co- please consider the phrase uncatty valley for inclusion. And boy, <laughs> that was an overworked Twitter joke and a good one. The uncatty valley. I love it. Thanks to Iolanthe for that one. Finally, David, in basketball news, uh, lots of players are, excuse me, let's take that over again. In basketball news, lots of NBA players ejecting themselves from the FIBA World Cup team this week. James Harden, Tobias Harris, Zion Williamson, all not going to play. It was an overworked Twitter joke uh, to announce that you too, Twitter user, were leaving the FIBA World Cup team. And I, and I include this not because it's particularly funny, but this is just, this, this is one of the great overworked formats of all time. Somebody, some celebrity announces something and you two decline. Like I am not appearing at Davos or I will not yeah. be at the Royal. Remember, didn't we have the Royal wedding version of this? 
I will not I be you're attending say the, the Royal, Royal Rumble, Rumble, but yes, that is correct. Yeah, I will not be attending the Royal Rumble. That'd be the wrestling version. Anyway, thanks to Dave Mulhern uh, for that one. All right, David, before we move on, let's take a quick break. Today's episode is brought to you by Luminary, a new podcast subscription service with some of the best content around. I'm excited about Luminary because it's the only place you can listen to the newest show on the Ringer Network, Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 1999. This is definitely a podcast you can't miss. Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 99 uh, is about a music festival in upstate New York that became a social experiment. There were riots, looting, and numerous assaults. It was set to a soundtrack of the era's most aggressive rock bands. And incredibly, it was the third iteration of Woodstock, a festival known for peace, love, and hippie idealism. Woodstock 99 revealed some hard truths behind the myths of the 60s and the danger that nostalgia can engender. The Luminary app is free to download in addition to the can't-miss originals. You can use it to listen to thousands of podcasts, including this one. Whether you're into music, TV and film, comedy, sports or more, Luminary has the right show for you. Check out Woodstock 99 and so much more only on Luminary. Get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash pressbox. After that, it's $7.99 a month. That's luminary.link slash pressbox for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash pressbox. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. All right, David, time for the notebook dump. Call this first uh, item Frankincense or Frankinsanity. <laughs> On Monday, uh, Twitter collectively paused to read Jane Mayer's big New Yorker reexamination of the Al Franken affair. If you've forgotten, the then U.S. Senator Franken was accused of a number of Me Too offenses, most notably pretending to grope the breasts of a talk show host named Leanne Tweeden while she slept while they were on their way back home from a USO tour. And what Mayer did, in addition to interviewing Franken, who not surprisingly regrets resigning and thinks he got railroaded, is to do a point-by-point recap of what happened. How the first allegation surfaced from Tweeden and then the subsequent allegations and then how Kirsten Gillibrand and a number of senators called on Franken to resign. I saw some mild uh, tweaking of this piece on Twitter. I thought, first of all, this was just a very valuable TikTok of that whole affair. Yeah. Because I don't know about you, David, but I had forgotten a lot of this. And mm-hmm. I had forgotten, for instance, the sheer number of charges against Al Franken and the sheer number yeah, of accusations. Too. I kind of felt like, oh, it's this one thing, but it had a photograph and all that stuff. What did you feel about the piece? Yeah, I felt the same way. I think I think that it was that the um, I wasn't more shocked because there were more accusations, I should say. Um, but yeah, I didn't remember the whole thing. I didn't remember the whole story. I think you're right that it was it was a helpful way to break it all down. And the media side of it, I thought, was what was most I mean, not most com- interesting, but but very interesting, especially again, for the purposes of this podcast. But it, just mm-hmm. the way that the, there were the constant refrain in the piece was that this that someone tried to or wanted to do this but it was but they didn't do it because of the way it would come across in the media or they tried to do this but it, but it fell in the deaf ears of the media um and just the way that one the kind of media the institution of of journalism is so predictable um and so in some ways averse to getting to the truth um that that i think was was what really uh well, I mean, what really stood out to me. Some of that came from the Franken team because they realized pretty early that there were inconsistencies in Tweeden's story. Or there were a couple of elements of Tweeden's story that weren't true. She thought, for instance, that 
Al Franken, she and Al Franken were performing on this USO tour for troops overseas. And they had a sketch and there was a kissing scene in the sketch where he and she were going to kiss. And she said that she thought he had written that for her as a kind of way of trapping her. And then there's all this video out in the world and also testimony from other women who Franken went on the tour with that he had performed this sketch many times. It was supposedly like a body body was a word repeatedly used in this piece, a body sketch they're done. There were things like that, but Franken, as you said, early ish in this me in the me too era thought he couldn't say anything about that because mm-hmm. he thought if I come out with this, it'll sound like I'm being defensive and it'll, It'll just make things worse. And he was calling for a essentially a Senate investigation into himself. Yeah. Meanwhile, meanwhile, all these other women come forward and eventually the eventually Gillibrand and a number of female senators call him to resign. And then he feels like he can't do anything about that. I was it's funny because I saw Nate Silver tweeted. He called the piece manipulative as hell and a masterclass in biased reporting and editing, essentially accusing the New Yorker and mayor of stacking the deck uh, to try to get readers to be sympathetic for Franken. That I think was probably some of the intention of the piece. I actually came out with the totally opposite feeling though, which is that while there were some things that happened very quickly and, you know, he certainly felt pressure and eventually caved to pressure and resigned from the Senate. I wasn't so sure that he got railroaded at all. And one reason of that is that this this photograph existed way before Al Franken ran for Senate in 2008. Mm-hmm. Al Franken, reminder, won his Senate race by 312 votes out of more than 2.5 million votes cast. Yeah. Now, if the if if Leanne Tweeden had put forth that picture in 2008, is Al Franken even in the Senate? No. No way. I mean, he 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 had a lot of stuff to deal with during that campaign about, oh, you know, I, you know, drug use on SNL and, you know, some some humor piece he wrote and some sketchy on all that kind of stuff. I, I don't know that I don't know that he's even in the Senate at all. So it seems a little weird to say, oh, well, you know, just because this came out in the context of. Harvey Weinstein, Me Too, Roy Moore, which was a campaign that's going on. Mayor writes a lot about that, that he would have, mm-hmm. that this was the only reason. Anyway, I just almost, I almost thought, oh, well, oh, wait, I forgot that this, this happened a long time ago and he might not have been in the Senate to begin with. In so much as it was a political hit on Franken, whether or not it was, there was railroading involved, the New Yorker piece by Jane Mayer went out of its way to, to kind of explain this, but the, 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 the story originated with, um, a conservative, a, a LA conservative uh, radio station, but they they published it on their website um, uh, in Mayor's retelling to give it sort of the sheen of legitimacy. Uh, but they didn't, you know, they didn't ask Franken's camp for any comment or anything before they before they published for fear that someone would would beat them to the story or the story would come out. Um, you know, I think our view, our, our perspective of, I think it was that's worth pointing out, and I don't know how much the the repetition of it being printed first, it really matters. But I do think that our perception is skewed by the fact that this was a successful hit. And or even if you don't want to consider it a hit, it's it's skewed by the fact that he that, you know, he ended up resigning from this from from his job. Right. Um, and 
if this had been a total boondog, if this had been like a Jacob Wolves thing, then I think we would look at it all completely differently. You know, if he, if he had kept his job and, and everything had blown over. I mean, I, th- I guess what I'm saying is, I think we're, we judge the story based on the results and, and, and based on what actually happened. And, and, and whether or not Mayor's piece is a, is a just corrective or, you know, manipulative trash, whatever, is, as, uh, as Nate Silver called it. I mean, not, not in those words, but <laughs> manipulative. Um, you know, I think... I think that the piece is is worthwhile uh, on its own terms. The I just add two things to that, which is not only did Franken resign, but Donald Trump and Brett Kavanaugh didn't. And for after being accused of much, 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 much more serious things. And so there's all this discontent to, to anger on the left that those guys got away with it. And somehow yeah. Al Franken, again, for some for stuff that was just not even in the ballpark, didn't get away with it. Yeah. And that to me, and that to me is, I mean, it's in a way, it's why the mayor piece is so valuable because that was my thought about it. And then you read this and you realize there's a lot more, there's just a lot, this is a lot more complicated than that. And, you know, I don't know, you know, Joe Biden, we saw push through a bunch of accusations of, unwanted touching and sort of weird behavior. Franken had a bunch of accusations like that. Even his, and some of his staffers say that he did the, you know, kind of Hollywood show business thing of just kissing all women on the lips, even women he didn't know well, something Mm -hmm. that would be interpreted and very, very rightfully interpreted as, as a weird thing to do. Um, I thought the other theme that came out of this from Franken's end is just as political tactics there's obviously part of him that wishes he just had hung in there and not resigned yeah. and pulled a Bob Menendez and said, Hey, this looks terrible, but I'm not going anywhere. And yeah. you can either stand with reference me. in the piece, right? You can either stand with me or not. And we'll do a huge investigation. And look, if Tweeden accepts his apology as she did and says she didn't want him to resign. If then you'd have, you know, some of these, if, if some of the accusations, if he had been able to get some information out there and stuff like that, would he have had to resign like six months later? I don't know. Does he get reelected? Maybe. And I, but again, that's all coming from him. And I just, I thought that was an undertone here of like, maybe Franken thinks he did the wrong thing. Yeah. And sure he does. if he had to, if he had to, you know, run this back, he would have just hung in there. Yeah, I mean, this is a really minor, a really, really small part of the story, but for the, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand and, and I mean, I guess Kamala Harris was mentioned, was part of that original group that, that, uh, that went to Schumer as well. But if you're so politically insecure that you can't wait to actually have evidence bear out, um, I'm not sure how that really reflects on your demeanor to be president. I think that's a, a question that's worth asking, right? Yeah, it's certainly been asked. Um, and you know, does, do we have any doubt that the Franken thing just, just, you know, cut the tires on the Gillibrand for president campaign before it even started? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's said pretty explicitly in the piece. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like, to me, when I hear, when I hear criticism of Gillibrand, it's like, I would say it's like 70% Franken related. Yeah. Uh, online anyway. But, um, a really interesting piece recommended Jane Mayer in the New Yorker. David, 2020 dropout watch. <laughs> Eric Swalwell is already gone. We've already we've we we already miss Eric Swalwell. Could Maryland's John Delaney be next? Oh, I want to no. refer you to a piece in Axios by Alexi McCammon titled 
John Delaney's staffers have asked him to drop out. (laughs) (laughs) Things things are going well when the people who work for you are begging you to stop running for president. Uh, McCammon reports that the staff thought he flopped at the first debate in Miami. Uh, notes that Delaney has not been competitive despite spending nearly $19 million and loaning himself $11 million of his own money. Delaney's wife, April, she reports is uh, basically running the campaign, according to one former staffer and Delaney. There's a feeling Delaney is easily influenced by outside forces like his wife and friends rather than his own staff. Also a reminder, David, John Delaney has been running for president for nearly a year now. Yeah. He declared last summer. And um, kind of ran that I'm I'm the only guy running for president bit for a long time. And anyway, it seems it seems like things are he's going to be in this next debate. So maybe that's it, <laughs> he kind of pulls pulls a swall well. And as soon as as soon as you run out of debates, you're out. Yeah, that maybe that's a strategy here. As long as I can get free time on cable, I'm running for president. And as for soon sure. as the free cable time draws up, dries up, I'm I'm gone. Mm hmm. Delaney denied the report, and yesterday he could be seen tweeting, quote, I talked about my favorite app, my go-to karaoke song, and my inspiration for fighting climate change on Now This News. So <laughs> we were not deprived of knowing uh, John Delaney's uh, go-to karaoke song. I, I, I did not have the heart to, to watch it. Uh, Dateline <laughs> of the week, David, was El Paso, Texas. Home state. Texas, great city, El Paso. An NBC reporter went there to take stock of the floundering, and that is the official journalistic adjective here, floundering, campaign (laughs) of Beto O'Rourke. And I'm going to read the lead of this article, and you just stop me if you hear something that maybe sounds a little bit off, okay? And it may be about El Paso, Texas. All right, you ready? Quote, Beto O'Rourke has gone from phenom to frontrunner to flailing in five months. And so he came home to this dusty border town last week to regroup (laughs) now wait what dusty border town better work is not from where snoopy's brother lived in the peanuts (laughs) (laughs) dusty border town that's fantastic el paso has six hundred thousand plus people dusty border town what what pulp fiction did the person by the way went there this is this is a dateline in El Paso. This isn't yeah, they didn't just like Google like retro postcards from El Paso history. <laughs> Was she watching Touch of Evil on the plane when she got off or something? <laughs> dusty border is, town anyway. I thought what that does funny. dusty even mean in a city? I mean, is it just is it just the old western like like dirt streets and stuff? I don't even know. Yeah, with the saloon and the sarsaparilla being sold in a cart or something like that. I tweeted this and so somebody weird. somebody somebody tweeted back, well, El Paso is kind of dusty, so maybe this <laughs> anyway. <laughs> David, I'd like to nominate a doorstepping journalist of the week. He is nice. Javon Vital of the TV station New York One. And at the US Capitol, he was following Rand Paul of Kentucky around. Rand Paul being one of the two senators to block unanimous passage of a bill that would fund the nine uh, eleven victim victims compensation fund. I want you to listen closely. Here is some of the audio of Vital and Paul's encounter in the hallways of Congress. This is so good. Senator Paul, is there anything you can say to the first responders who came yesterday? 
It'll be interesting to see what, yeah, uh, if you watch Fox News, we just did an interview on Fox News, and there's a lot of good information on there. If you'll tell your viewers to tune into Fox News, we have some great stuff well, on there. With all due respect, sir, I'm not Fox News, but can you paraphrase um, really quickly? Well, you if, if you're a professional outlet, you could call and get an interview like they did. Sir, we've tried multiple times. Yeah, I don't can know you, who you are, who you are. I'm, I'm with New York One. Sir, New York what is your objection so to the bill? suggestion. If you would like to be sort of a professional reporter. With all due respect, sir, what, what is your objection to the 9-11 first responder bill? If you'll call and get an interview, that would be a great idea. Well, I understand you, you have issues with the national debt. If you watch Fox News. Is that your objection, sir? If you watch Fox News, you'll see that we explained exactly what the lies were. So watch Fox News. And you're Can, do you mind clearing that up, sir? What do you mean by the lies? Is there anything else you can tell us, sir? All right. Thank you, Senator. Wow. Do you think Rand Paul genuinely wants Javon Vital to be a professional reporter? You think he wants to help him? <laughs> kind of be like, just give, like me, just give me some career advice here. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, if you just if you just watch Fox News and transcribe my remarks off a of friendly outlet, we could finally what get some that answers. even. Do you think that maybe this doesn't matter? Do you think that if you watch Fox News, I already did an interview there, is a more compelling case than no comment? I mean, do you think that he do you think he came off looking better than if he had just been like, yeah, no, no, no big deal, but no comment right now. Wouldn't that have been the way to go if you're determined not to talk to anybody? Absolutely. I mean, it, it sort of cuts the interview short, right? Are they going to yeah. run? Is New York one going to run a minute of following mute Rand Paul down the hallway? Probably not. No. <laughs> I was when I was watching it, I was I couldn't help but think local news is like the dorkiest old media thing. There oh, are yeah. only so many things that transfer from that world into Twitter world, but guy following politician down the hallway and politician lecturing the guy is is one of those things that translates perfectly. Yeah. It's amazing. It's go, it work it works on Twitter just like it worked on the channel 6 i team back home. Yeah. Well, this is also it's also this is the case this is the case, you know, for just sort of laying bare the filibuster, you know, and we've talked before about how, you know, one of Trump's master strokes was figuring out that he could just bullshit for, you know, 30 seconds and this question would change to something you wanted to talk about. All you have to do is kind of run out the clock. Um, man, I'm sure that Rand Paul probably thought that he was running out the clock. You know, I bet he thought that this was going to be a, a, a five second clip anywhere that if, if it if it amounted to any TV time at all. But. I mean, he just looked like someone who didn't have the facility to discuss a vote he had just made. And it's no. that was like, I mean, that's this is this is their this is all the can that in the next cycle. These are the, the 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 campaign commercials against him for I mean, for his opponent. This is it's just going to be this just walking down the hall, not having an answer to a very simple question. Uh, David, I have a content farm report for you. Rural radio station might have a farm report. We've got a content farm report here. Mm-hmm. A really interesting piece by Tiffany Sue in the New York Times about Jeffrey Epstein, who has uh, been accused, been indicted on sex trafficking charges. Uh, the piece is called Jeffrey Epstein pitched a new narrative and these sites published it. So after Jeffrey Epstein got out of jail oh, yeah. for the first time back in 2009, he tried to rehabilitate his image by having someone pitch journalists about all the good stuff he'd done, all his all his good works. Uh, he got pieces in National Review, HuffPo, and Forbes.com. <laughs> Quoting Tiffany Sue's piece here, the article on the Forbes website was attributed to Drew Hendricks, a contributing writer. As the Times revealed an article last week, he was not the author of the piece. 
Instead, it was delivered to him by a public relations firm, and he was paid $600 to attach his byline and post it at Forbes.com. Uh, she continues about Forbes.com. A staff of roughly 200 employees produces Forbes's in-house journalism, but most of the 100 articles the site publishes yeah. each day comes from a group of nearly 3,000 outside writers. Yeah. 3,000? Yeah. I mean, Forbes is... I, I know this, again, only because I uh, <laughs> traffic in, in uh, professional wrestling journalism, which is uh, just a wonderful part of the the Internet's underbelly. But, yeah, I mean, Forbes Forbes is like, I think, the most um, to I mean, it, people are constantly surprised that Forbes is just a content mill, like some of the worst offenders out there. All you have to do is just publish. A p- I mean, email in a piece and the odds are it's going to go up on Forbes dot com and it's going to look like a legitimate piece and it's going to have the imprimatur of, of you know, high level journalism but no this is just like a this is like it's it's blog spot you know i mean there's the the, the difference is is vanishingly small think of how many art requests you get on a, on a given day and how strung out you feel just imagine if <laughs> there were three thousand writers that's that's more re- than the new york times has reporters yeah that's it's crazy three thousand we got time for one more thing do you want to hear aaron boone yankees manager Oh, Stumping man. for the Yes Network on Slink Television, or do we want to read uh, negative reviews of the Lion King? Let's do Lion King. Come on, we already did it. Department of Pans. Almeida put these together. Thank you, Chris. Uh, from the Department of Pans, I always love these because it's kind of like an anti-blurb. Here, here's what you will not see on the Lion King commercial attributed yes. or the or the poster in the old yes. days. Uh, Anthony Lane at the New Yorker rarely has brand recognition soared to such fetishistic heights. And I regret to inform you that aside from updating of the vocal cast, the most blatant discrepancy between the old and the new is a very slight increase in the comedy of flatulence. Uh, so that's <laughs> Anthony Lane on the line. <laughs> Kent Garrison at the Mad About Movies podcast. Just about every choice John Favreau made as director was the wrong choice. And his insistence on 100% realism in a film in which animals talk, sing, and do choreography makes my head hurt. <laughs> makes my head hurt would be great for the... Uh, for the ad, the sort with the soaring music on uh, on a network television. Oh, and our friend and colleague Rob Harvilla. Anytime you get Harvilla on the poster, it's great with an anti blur. Yes, he writes Disney's money grubbing empire. Oh, we're already off to a great start there, by the way. Disney's money grubbing <laughs> empire indeed encompasses everything that the light touches, even those parts the light already quite lucratively touched. May we all live long enough to see our favorite kids' movies transformed. Not ruined exactly, and certainly not improved into spirited and yet bloodless technological marvels. A spirited and yet bloodless technological oh my marvel. Gosh. That is that that's a great one right there. What an anti-blurb. Congrats to Rob uh for writing the uh seminal blurb about the lion. <laughs> Good usage there. Time for David Shoemaker guesses the strained pun headline. God, okay. We pause now for David to groan theatrically. <laughs> oh man. The last winner was Fantastic Yeasts and Where to Find Them. Fantastic Yeasts and Where to Find Them. That was good stuff. I've got a British Open or Open Championship pun for you, David. It's from an article in something called Omnisport, which was syndicated on Yahoo. And it's about when when sports news breaks, we turn to Omnisport. It's about the English golfer Lee Westwood, whose girlfriend Helen Story was his caddy last weekend in Northern Ireland at the Open Championship. And Leah Westwood says, she doesn't know too much about golf, but she knows a lot about the way my mind works. Uh, But what you need to know, David, is that a golfer named Lee Westwood had his girlfriend 
as his caddy at the Open Championship. What is the Omni Sports strained pun headline? Girlfriend. Uh, caddy. I mean, it, um. Yeah, no, no more musicals. That was just, <laughs> I feel we did a, there's no more rain caddy. in Spain on the plane in, in here. But the, is that my music? Yes. Like, this is so hard. Is, um, uh, caddy, uh. Is Caddy in the headline? Can I can I get that? I mean, is there, caddy, is there a pun? Cat, is there a play on Caddy? Caddy is in it, but not as a pun. No, it is not the pun. I, I think. Oh, let me tell you this: open is the pun word. Okay, it's not who's your Caddy or something. The um the uh open uh, open relationship. Ah, open. Westwood am enjoying I there. Open relationship <laughs> with Caddy girlfriend is the Omnisport headline. Uh, Open, oh capital, man! Capital open, capital O I'm open. I'm looking this up now. Westwood enjoying open relationship with Caddy girlfriend. Then a picture of them uh, kissing on the Omni Sport. Congratulations to the folks at Omni Sport for uh, winning this weekend's this week's excuse me strain pun headline. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Chris Almeida helps us with research. Jim Cunningham produces this show. More lukewarm takes about the media on Friday. Talk to you then, David. See you later, Brian. Whatever life is, I want it to be here in the balcony of the Winter Garden, watching cats climb up and down the walls. Um, broadcasting on a pirate radio to an audience of 100 people, you know. 3,000? Maybe this doesn't matter. I talked about my favorite app, my go-to karaoke song, and my inspiration for fighting climate change on Now This News. Mm-hmm. It was one of the most magical nights of my life. Because you, I mean, just I'll just put you a little bit on the spot but you i'm allergic to cats yes i'm allergic to cats you know as nervous as a cat in a room full of rocking chairs to go on the air today take it away dancing cats what the fuck was that whole thing about i think that's a question that's worth asking right no way